this last week. Wow, gas prices and uh, the gas shortage stuff is really kind of crazy. And uh, I don't know if you heard some stories. I know there's a couple of people in our church that shared with me some uh, really kind of scary stuff that happened at uh, gas stations as they were trying to fill up. People getting angry and throwing fits and pulling out baseball bats and whacking cars and people threatening other people. And just uh, really reminded me of, of some of the stuff that we talked about last week about as Christ followers, what, we, what qualities we're to possess and uh, the Beatitudes. And uh, maybe think of pure in heart. And I uh, always had this uh, little illustration, another illustration for pure in heart. I gave a few last week. But, um, well, it's not little. It's a big jar. Uh, it's kind of shook up from the last service. But there's, this isn't pure H2O, as you can tell. Uh, there's some dirt in this H2O. So it's not one thing. It's a mix of things. But what happens is uh, even with a mix of things in here, uh, you let it set for a while and don't disturb it, and all the, the dust and the dirt settles down to the bottom. And the water on top looks clear. Looks like it's pure. But all it takes is a little disruption, a little something to hit your broadside, uh, a gas shortage, or something like that, and starts shaking things up, shakes your life up, and, uh, and all the dirt rises to the top, and it's just another mess. And it's just another picture. Whoops, my little jar is leaking here. Uh, it's just another picture of why we need Christ, and, and that we can try to do things on our own to put down those things that are impure in our life or try to do our own little code of ethics or whatever. But really what we need is a new heart. And then also, you know, this isn't just something that happens one time at conversion, you know, when you come to Christ, but it's, it's also, we need Christ to help remove some of those impurities. You know, it wasn't a gas shortage for me this last week. It was yesterday when I was underneath the sink trying to fix the pipes. And uh, there, was, there was stuff that wanted to come up out of my mouth when I was frustrated. And it's going, where did that come from? You know, and, and uh, I find those things in my life, some of those impurities that are there. So... Something, uh, again, just another illustration of, of kind of what we've been talking about, who we're to be, and that being makes us different. So I'm going to go grab this stool over here. Hold on a second. Just a little uh, refresher of kind of what we've talked about the past couple of weeks with uh, the Beatitudes and the results of the Beatitudes. Uh, it's come from Oswald Chambers. Uh, someone uh, was reading uh, Oswald and sent his uh, quote from the other day, and uh, here's, here's some of his thoughts. Uh, He says, the Sermon on the Mount is not some unattainable goal. It is a statement of what will happen in me when Jesus Christ has changed my nature by putting his own nature in me. Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, we must be made disciples supernaturally. Our Lord's making of a disciple is supernatural. He does not build on any natural capacity of ours at all. God does not ask us to do things that are naturally easy for us. He only asks us to do things that we are perfectly fit to do through his grace. And that is where the cross we must bear will always come. So I thought that summed up well, kind of a little bit of what we've, we've talked about. And uh, I've, I've spoken to you the Beatitudes, the broad statements that describe the character that Jesus envisions in his followers. And then... After that, we, we talked about how Jesus then turned to conclude the Beatitudes and talking about what happens uh, when we possess those qualities and how that changes our relationship with the world. And that for one who possesses those qualities, uh, that we become like salt. 
the God flavors of this earth. We become light and become the, the, the God colors of this world. And these, these words of Jesus to those who sat on the mountainside and listened to him, they were new to them. They'd never heard anything like this before. And his teaching was, was quite amazing. And being Jewish people, they would evaluate all new things in relationship to teaching that they had already received from the Jewish scriptures. So Jesus knows this. He knows that they're going to evaluate based on the Old Testament. And so he addresses his relationship that he has and his teaching has to the Jewish scriptures. And so uh, Matthew 5 Verse 17 through 20 is where we're kind of picking up today. And uh, if you got a Bible, it'd be great. Uh, there's some stuff later on. It would just be great if you had it open. You could kind of look at it and know where I'm going. But um, if not, it's okay. There'll be stuff up on the screens. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of, these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Well, Jesus drops uh, some big things there, but, but two big heavyweight things that he, he lays down right there is one is that Jesus says in verses 17 and 18 that everything he is going to teach is in absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. He's not contradicting, contradicting or changing them or adding to them, he is carrying them out. Two is that the second thing in verses 19 and 20 is that this teaching of, of his, which is in harmony with the Old Testament, is in complete disharmony and utter contradiction to the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now that was blow your mind stuff for these people sitting on the hillside because you know they thought, well, hey, aren't the Pharisees teaching us the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish scriptures? And he's, he's telling us what we're hearing isn't, isn't right. Well, this was kind of a, whoa, this is a little tricky here. So let's, let's take a look at what Jesus was saying about his harmony with the scriptures. So first of all, Jesus said that, and he spoke of the law and the prophets, which meant the entire Old Testament. Sometimes people would speak of the law, which meant the Pentateuch, the first five books that we have in the Old Testament. But when someone said the law and the prophets, they meant the entire Old Testament canon, as we still have it today. And within the law, there was the moral law, there was ceremonial law, and there was judicial law. And the prophets, what that included, was all the record, rec, records from Joshua all the way to Malachi. And the prophets were ones who actually taught the law. Uh, they applied it, and they interpreted it to the people. And usually, they were telling the people of Israel, hey, you're not following the law. And that was usually why the prophets didn't have a very fun job, because nobody likes to be told that they aren't doing what's right. So there were foretellers and foretellers, and, and both are included in the prophet books of the Old Testament. Now, we know that abolish means do away with. So when Jesus said, I'm not here to 
abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Uh, it means that he wasn't there to do away with it. Now, I want to be clear on what it means to fulfill. And fulfill as it's spoken here doesn't mean to complete or finish or, or add on to something that's already begun. The real meaning of fulfill is to carry out. So what was Jesus saying when he said these, these things? He said that the Old Testament is absolute and eternal. And not even the smallest part of it will ever be reduced or abolished until heaven and earth disappear. Now, there's some big things in the Old Testament scriptures to be carried out, like in Daniel, talking about when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. That hasn't been carried out yet. But Jesus says here, this law, the, the word of God is not going to disappear until everything is carried out and completed. So there, there are still some things to look forward to. But uh, the second thing uh, Jesus says is that he is going to carry out and give perfect obedience to, to these scriptures, to the Old Testament scriptures. Everything that is in the law and the prophets culminates in Christ and he is carrying it out. So Jesus puts his stamp. He puts his seal of authority on the whole Old Testament. And all of this is of God, he says, and he came to carry it out. Now, if, if you'll read through the New Testament and the Gospels in particular, you'll, you'll see where Jesus quotes the Old Testament over and over. And so much of it so that, that you, go, you can almost pick out every book of the Old Testament and go, okay, he said that was, that was you know, he's quoting it as if it's real, if it's true. So, he verifies it here, and he says, okay, what I'm about to share with you, what I just shared, about, shared with you on the Beatitudes, and what I'm going to share with you now from my teaching is in harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. So, how did he carry it out? How, how did he carry out in his life the law and the prophets? Well, the prophets, it's more obvious. The, you know, the prophecies concerning the manner and place and time of his birth, they were all described by the prophets. And then Jesus was born in that manner, at that time, in that place. The description of him in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the suffering savior, the accounts of what he was going to do, the miracles and teaching, prophecies carried out like that in Psalm 22 that described his death and the mode of death. Then there are the prophecies about what was going to, uh, what was going to bring the non-Jews or, or, or Gentiles, as they called us, and also the descriptions of what, hap what would happen on Pentecost Day in Jerusalem were all there in the Old Testament prophets and then carried out by Christ. When you consider everything that's foretold in the Old Testament scripture with the prophets, you know, it's really a shame that the New Testament is ever printed by itself. I mean, it's, it's really the second part of the story. It's, it's we're, we're getting the rest of the story. So Jesus carried out what was in the prophets, but, but what about the law? How did he carry that out? Well, in the big picture of the law, the, the punishment of sin by death has to be carried out. And Jesus did that by, by dying on the cross. That's the big major way that he carried out the law. But, but more than this, Jesus fulfills the law in us. Not by making a new law, but by making a, prom, a new promise. And he says this, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
So because of your new relationship to the Lord through a promise, all the law is fulfilled in you because of Jesus. See, the ceremonial law is fulfilled because Jesus, he is your altar. He is your sacrifice. He is the laver. He is the incense for you. You're not responsible to perform all that and carry it out because he's done it for you, in you, through you. The judicial law, which is primarily for the nation of Israel and how they are conduct themselves as a nation, as a people, is now fulfilled by Jesus. And because he has invited you to be a part of a new kingdom, he hasn't invited you to be a part of Israel, he's invited you to be a part of his new kingdom, a new nation, a new spiritual race of people united in Jesus. And he's the head. Now, the last part of the, the law, the moral law, is a bit different. The moral law, which is, includes the Ten Commandments and other moral principles in it, are permanent, and they still apply to us even today, even to us Gentiles. But that is also fulfilled by Jesus in us. Although the apostles explained to us that the moral law still applies to us as Gentiles, because of our relationship to Jesus, we're not under a covenant of works, a promise of works, of a do list, but we're under a covenant or a promise of grace. You see, the law is not in opposition to grace. But in fact, the law shows us our sin, makes us aware, and then leads us like a teacher to Christ. It's what, the, what Galatians says in the scriptures. So the law is good. So the Sermon on the Mount, just want to be clear, is not new law. I'll say it again. It's a picture of those who have encountered grace and a picture of who they are to be. So Jesus' teaching is consistent and in harmony with the law and the prophets, but it's very, very different from the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Big words. Wow, I want to pay attention to that. Pharisee, you know what actually that word means? It means separatist. They were called that because they formed... Uh, a code of ceremonial acts connected to the law, which was more rigid than the law itself. And because they obeyed all these things, they tried to distinguish themselves as people that, that not only did they obey the law, but they, they went even further than what the law required of them. So they were really good. They were really righteous and really uh, pleasing to God. So the law only, for instance, the law only asked for a person to fast once a year. But the Pharisees commanded people to fast twice a week. And the Pharisees, the one thing about them, and, and sometimes we think hypocrite uh, when we think of the word Pharisee, and sometimes we think hypocrite, someone who says something, but then they don't do what they say or what they teach. And, and that's true, but it's not necessarily true with the Pharisees because the Pharisees, not only did they say it, they actually did it. They did do it. So what was their hypocrisy? What was their deal? What was wrong with this, uh, their righteousness that didn't really measure up, as Jesus said? Well, it was, it was because they, again, they separated themselves on external things. And, and what happened is the average person of their day would look at a Pharisee and say, man, man they do a lot. I mean, they do a lot. That seems really like they're really good. Well, I could never measure up to that. Wow. And, but then Jesus comes along and he says that, that if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you're in trouble. Well, the truth Jesus reveals about the Pharisees is that they just had external righteousness. 
It wasn't internal. Well, it had nothing to do with their heart at all. The most simple picture of this defective righteousness is found in Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go up to the temple. And it's found in Luke 18. And I just want to read that to you real briefly. Uh, Verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, bowed himself. God, I thank you I'm not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbled himself will be exalted. So, now know that everything that that Pharisee said was true. He wasn't like other people, and he did fast twice a week, and he probably did give a tenth of all he got, but he didn't go home right with God. He didn't go home right with God. But yet the tax collector, the, humi- the man who humil- humili- he humbled himself, he was humiliated and said, I am a sinner, have mercy on me, does go right, does go home right before God. You see, you can see the contrast be- between one who possesses the qualities of the Beatitude and one who doesn't. What's wrong with the Pharisee's idea of righteousness? Well, he was relying on the wrong thing, resting upon things that appeared to be real worship, but were not really the position of true worship. The Pharisee's religion was entirely external and formal instead of having to do anything with the heart. They were negligent of their insides. Jesus talked about this in other parts of the gospel. He said, you, you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is filthy. Take care of your heart. And the crazy thing is that they were totally unconscious of this. They didn't even realize they were doing it. And that's the scary thing that Jesus warns us about. and says that we have to be careful of this. We've got to be careful that we do not become externally focused, relying on the one, wrong things, or becoming separatists based on appearances rather than on being different because of a changed heart. You know, we're in danger of this false righteousness all the time. I, I bump into it, I run into it, uh, going to a conference or whatever and talking with other young missional pastors and, and they start talking about all the things that they're doing to serve their community and it's kind of a one-up up you kind of thing and, and kind of like, mm, yeah, well, we're doing this and this makes us really right uh, other than, than, you know, better than these other churches who don't do anything. And then, you know, uh, Jason, he, saw, he was telling me about how he saw it at Cornerstone uh, at this music festival with, with really young people. And uh, he said that there are people actually purposely and demonstratively trying to look and act like they're homeless, even though they weren't. They're trying to act and look like they're homeless, you know, eating out trash cans, thinking that their outward identification with the poor uh, somehow made them uh, more righteous than the other people there that were uh, merely consumers of, of what was going on. And uh, the thing to know about that kind of craziness is, is just know that a Pharisee always concentrates upon their own achievements rather than on their relationship with God. They consider first their duty 
and, and performance instead of considering first the glory of God. You know, it's an insult to God. And there's no real worship in it at all. You know, a Pharisee is satisfied with himself. While one who possesses the qualities that Jesus envisions has a profound lack of satisfaction within him or her. You know, the Pharisee is always thinking about refraining from certain actions and rarely thinks about the attitude of their heart or having a supreme desire to know the Lord and love him more truly. It's, it's this whole external falseness. So the righteousness Jesus desires us to have is one that comes from relying upon our relationship to him, not upon our external achievements. So, that being said, do we abandon doing, abandon obeying, or works? No. No, we don't. In the verse prior to, to this comment about the Pharisees' righteousness, Jesus says that in his kingdom, those who practice and teach his commands will be rewarded. A righteous life means that not only have I been forgiven by Jesus' death, but that also I've been given a new life and a new nature. It means that Christ is being formed in me. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. Old things are gone and all things are new. It means that Christ is dwelling in me and the Spirit of God is in me. A person who is born again is a person who is righteous and it, it, it exceeds the external righteousness of the Pharisees every time, all the time. The person is no longer self-satisfied, self-righteous, but instead poor in spirit, meek, merciful, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, a heart purified and a heart that it, it wants to be a peacemaker. That person's focus is on God's glory and, and loves God and loves his commands. Now, what Jesus, what, what follows after this are six illustrations, verse 20 all the way to 48. And Jesus is just illustrating. He's saying, okay, I'm telling you about this, this uh, defective righteousness of the Pharisees. Let me give you some examples of that. Because again, the people were kind of confused. They were scratching their heads going, but these are our teachers. I thought they were really good. And so he gives some examples, some illustrations. Now, what happens is sometimes today, uh, some folks will want to take these six illustrations in chapter 5 and they want to turn it into a new law. It's not that. Jesus, was try- Jesus is trying to give the positive of the law. But here, let me, just, let me just explain. In verses 21 to 48, Jesus presents these illustrations and he's trying to correct the, the misteaching of the Pharisees. But in each illustration, uh, Jesus begins, he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said. Now, he doesn't say, you have read in the law, or it was written and you have read, because most of the Jewish people hadn't read the law. They had stopped understanding Hebrew after the Babylonian captivity, and they came back and they spoke Aramaic. So they depended upon the Pharisees to relate the scriptures to them. But the Pharisees had started adding their own interpretations to where the people who listened couldn't tell the difference between what was really written and what the Pharisees, what they were interpreting. So Jesus confronts this and he adds an extraordinary statement. He says, not only uh, you have heard what it, this is what, the, what was said, but then he says, but I tell you, but I tell you. And then he gives his interpretation. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm interpreting law and it's my interpretation that's true, not the Pharisees. Jesus is suggesting, he's saying, hey, I was the one who gave the law to Moses, so it's me alone who can truly interpret it. 
These but I tell you statements claim the authority of God. So not only does he confront the Pharisees teaching is false, but then he presents the positive illustration, the heart of the commands, the heart and spirit of the law. And so how a follower should behave. In all six illustrations, Jesus presents the principle that is the spirit of law that matters primarily, not just the letter. Spirit always has to be embodied in form. And that is where we, we get things wrong. We start to focus on the form rather than on the content. We tend to focus on the letter instead of the spirit. The apostle Paul said the letter kills, but the spirit gives light. The whole purpose of the letter is to give body to the spirit. And the spirit is the thing that really matters. It's not we do away with the letter. Jesus already showed us that the law and commands of God are good and are going to stand forever. The commands and the law of God are good, but we must interpret the letter according to the spirit. So this is one of the principles that's in all six of these illustrations. Another principle in all six is that the commands of God and pleasing God is not always about what we do or don't do, but it's also about our inward condition and our attitude. The Pharisees were really great with this. They could obey certain commands, but then still be full of, of uh, spite and envy and jealousy and the pride of life. And the, but the purpose and the commands of God are not just to prevent us from doing certain things that are wrong. The real object is to lead us to do what is right. To do what is right. And not only that, but to love what is right. That's what the commands of God are for. The commands of God are to bring us into liberty as children of God. Another principle that's in all six illustrations is that we're never to think of the commands of God as something that we merely conform to, but that the objective is for you and I to know God. When you read the commands of God, you learn something about his character. And you come to know him, who he is. So when you examine your heart before you go to sleep at night, it's, it's not so much that you ask yourself, well, hey, I didn't commit murder, didn't commit adultery, haven't been guilty of this or that, so hey, everything's good, all right, all is well, thank God. No, instead, Jesus is saying, look at the heart, don't look at the external, externals. Instead, the questions we might ask if we're looking at the internal, looking at our heart, we'd, we'd say, well, has God, has he really been the supreme? Has he been the supreme desire in my life today? Have I lived in any way to give glory and honor to God today? Do I, do I know him better? Have I any kind of zeal for his honor and glory? Has there been inward things in my life that are unchristlike? Thoughts, desires, impulses. Those are the kind of questions instead. Looking at the inside of the cup, not the outside of the cup. So, the one fatal thing that Jesus seems to warn about in all six of these illustrations about the Pharisees is our fatal tendency to live the Christian life apart from a direct and true relationship to God. Jesus talked about this. He said, you know, that we're to be connected to him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. You know, we, we, but we always are tempted. We're always trying to do it without him. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. So quickly, I'm just going to run through these six illustrations. And uh, they're very simple. Uh, Jesus starts, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You know, the heart of this command is just concern for the attitude of the heart and your attitude of the heart towards others. You know, if you hurt someone or someone hurts you, don't think that you can fix it with a, a gift to God and that somehow that's going to even the score and make things right. Don't do that. 
Don't skirt the issue. Instead, go directly to the person that you've offended or they've offended you and correct the wrong that's been done. Jesus then says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And as in the first illustration, the Pharisees have presented the command of God correctly, but they've not taught concern for the heart. Jesus points to the attitude and desires of the heart as being important. Being in right relationship with God is important. Jesus tells the people, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a woman so divorced commits adultery. You know what? God never commanded anyone to divorce. He didn't tell them to do that. At the time of Moses, a certificate of divorce was given to protect the woman, proof that she had not been unfaithful, because that would mean scary things back then. They would stone adulterers. So she would have this certificate, say, I wasn't unfaithful. My husband divorced me for some other reason. So at the time of Jesus, though, men were divorcing their wives for really frivolous reasons. And the Pharisees were granting certificates of divorce for a man not merely, for just merely not liking his wife. It was insane. So Jesus corrects the Pharisees and emphasizes that marriage is not just a civil contract. It's something in which two people become one, and that oneness is, is permanent. So, now, before I go on to the next illustration, I know that there's a question some people have in their heads, and I'll just answer it with this. Uh, does the Lord forgive adultery? Yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right, next illustration. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. And Jesus goes on to list the other things that people swear by. Now, Jesus is not speaking against the use of oaths or promises altogether, but he's speaking against the Pharisees' abuse of them. You see, at the time, the Pharisees had come up with a whole system of how swearing by one thing uh, really meant something, but if you swore by something else, then it doesn't really mean anything. And so they would say things like, well, you know, if you swear by the the gold on the temple, that means you're really going to fulfill your promise. That means you mean it. Uh, But if you swear by just the temple, eh, it doesn't mean anything. And if you don't fulfill your promise, that's all right. And so basically it was a form of evasion, they were coming up with a system on how they could lie. They said, yeah, I'm going to do that. I swear by the gold on the temple or the temple, whichever one is the one that's not done count. You'd have to keep that all straight in your head, wouldn't you? Well, that'd be confusing. Well, that's what their system was. It was confusing. And Jesus just says, forget it. That's just craziness. You're trying to find ways to evade keeping your word. And he says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mean it. Be people of truth. So, you know, in the Old Testament, you'll see people who did swear, and they made a promise to God. It's not that that was bad. It's just these guys were abusing all that, and it meant absolutely nothing at that time. So, then Jesus goes on to say in his fifth illustration, you've heard that was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him, the other also. Jesus corrects the Pharisees who took this command and made it for a means of repaying personal insults. When actually the command was really a command that was for judges of Israel. And it was for them to help them, uh, remind them that they were to carry out justice 
and to deliver punishment equal to the crime. So if, if a guy got into a fight and gets his eye knocked out, then, then the punishment was not to kill the other guy that took his eye. Uh, it, was just, it was to say there need to be equal, uh, punishment needs to be equal to the crime. And it was also to stop revenge, which was just going crazy. Again, this was a fr- Israel was a people that had just come out of slavery and they were figuring out how to be a nation. And they didn't know how to do it. And so God had to give these really basic rules. Well, the Pharisees take this and turn it into a personal rule. And, and, uh, and so they devise it as a way to uh, repay personal insults. You know, well, hey, you slapped my cheek or you insulted me in front of these other people. So I have the right to insult you in front of these other people. And that's the way they used it. Uh, Jesus instead teaches that when it comes to personal insult and rights, we're to lay, lay them down. Don't, don't return equal vengeance. We're to be poor in spirit, merciful, meek, strength under control. And in the last illustration, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, hate your enemies. The Pharisees actually taught that. They really did. Where did they find that? It's nowhere in the Old Testament at all. It's not in the scriptures anywhere. So how did they come up with that? Well, the Pharisees uh, taught uh, that, you know, you are to love your neighbor, which is in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And, but then they taught your neighbors are just Jews. Anybody else who's not a Jew is not your neighbor. And not only are they foreign to you, an alien, but you're to regard them as enemies. And therefore, hate your enemies. And that's how they came up with it. And is this real deluded thing. But in truth, really the law said in several places that the Jews were to be kind to foreigners. Be kind to the Gentiles. Because, what? Because the Israelites were once foreigners too in a strange land. But Jesus, he totally blows everybody's mind by saying, love your enemies. And even for us Gentiles, man, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a doozy. And he tells us that our treatment of others must never depend upon what they are or upon what they do for us or do to us. And he implies by this that we're not to be controlled by other people and what they do to us or think about us. We're to deny ourselves and to love indiscriminately like God the Father. And this kind of God love or agape love is not based on feelings or sentiment, but on action. Agape is giving or bringing to others that which is for the hi- their highest good. Their highest good. You know, Jesus, God said that, that the, Jesus said that the Lord, he uh, sends his rain and his, his sunshine on the good and the wicked. And that's, that's how he shows his love to all. And that we're to do that, we're to imitate that. So Jesus ends all his illustrations by telling the people, don't be like the Pharisees. Your righteousness has to surpass that. But be like God the Father. Be like him. Love like him. Be like our Lord in heart and in action. Look at the internal, not the external. And I know, if anything, this is, this is what we're always trying to say here at Highland, that we're people that are all about our relationships we're all about loving God and loving people. And the biggest, most important relationship 
any of us could ever have is one with Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's where we want to keep our focus. We, and yes, we are to do things. We're supposed to, our faith is supposed to be lived out. And we want to do that. But we want to be careful that we don't get focused on the external. We want to do things, everything out of our relationship with Christ. So right now, uh, the guys are going to come up. We're going to close with a song today. We're going to wrap things up with uh, what Jesus said here at the end of chapter 5. We're going to pick up where Jesus begins. Not, he's going to stop looking at the external stuff that the Pharisees pointed out. He's going to start looking at the internal things in chapter 6 and about our inner life and how our inner life is to please God. And we'll be looking at that. So thank, I'm so glad you guys were here to listen and, and, and take this in. Um, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that the Word of God just soaks in deep.